Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it and by your spirit, you are building up your people in maturity in Christ. Lord, may this morning serve that purpose. We ask in confidence and in the name of Christ. Amen. Everybody, uh, well, most everybody, loves a good mystery. A whodunit. Uh, I was, and, and remain to this day for some reason, a big fan of uh, the TV show known as Lost. And surely some of that is my own nerdiness, because a lot of the characters are named after famous philosophers. For example, in the show, there's this crazy French wo- woman named Rousseau, and she lives in the jungle. If you don't know who she's named after, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was known for the, well, he's a French philosopher, who was known for the idea that society corrupts us, and if that man could just go live in the jungle, he would be perfectly fine. He'd be uncorrupted. And so the uh, Lost Riders were very astute by making this French woman go insane, uh, living by herself. Rousseau was wrong. Or they had this man named John Locke, who is a man of faith, named after, after the uh, deistic political philosopher who secularized the Christian work uh, known as Lex Rex. And it was through Lex Rex and John Locke that our founding fathers came up with a lot of their ideas of how government should function. But that show really relied on the idea of mystery. Mystery was a big part of the show, and it was a big part of why it was so successful. I remember hearing one of their creators speak about the importance of mystery to storytelling. It kind of gets its hook in you, so you come back next week. Well, what does this really mean? What's really going to happen? And the show was really good at including mysteries, but the problem was is that every time they gave you an answer to one of the mysteries, it created three more mysteries. And so much so that at the end of the show, everything fell flat, and everybody was really upset because the finale didn't really help the show at all. And that's largely because they tried to tie everything up with some weird form of universal relativism where you could create your own reality and truth. And so let that be a lesson to you. Even a relativistic society isn't satisfied with that being the end of the story. It grates against our soul. But the idea of mystery is a reoccurring theme throughout the New Testament. That God has slowly uh, but surely revealed his mystery to us in the person in the work of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, a woman at my uh, old church wrote me an email that gave me all the references in the New Testament uh, to the word mystery. And to her, specifically, uh, the reason of that email was that mystery was tied to a specific end times belief and system. And surely, the revelation of Jesus Christ Uh, plays a huge part of any end times uh, theology. And yet in this passage, and most of the ones she sent to me, uh, the mystery wasn't something that had yet to be revealed, but it is something here that Paul says has already been revealed. The Christian church already knows the content of that mystery. It's not something that you have to piece together to find some secret code to in the Bible. You don't have to be a biblical sleuth picking up on little breadcrumbs to figure out the substance of the mystery. Paul tells us quite plainly in this passage what the substance of the mystery is. And unlike with the TV show Lost, it's not a letdown when the mystery is revealed. It's beautiful to behold and it is our hope. So in today's passage, Paul is going to speak a lot about his own ministry and how it centers on the mystery of Jesus Christ. This mystery, he says, is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
So let me put that a little more plainly. You and I don't live in an age of mystery anymore. The Old Testament saints did. There were mysteries given to them in the text that they could not see, that they longed to fully understand. And we now have the substance of the mystery. It's been revealed. The curtain has been pulled back so you might see what God has been talking about all along. So today, we're going to talk about the content of the mystery uh, as it has been revealed to us. Then we're going to see that this mystery is meant to bring about maturity in our lives. And then we'll see that it is, should, it is something worth suffering for. And finally, that the mystery should keep us from being deceived. That's the importance of the mystery. So, what is the mystery that has now been revealed? Well, it is and centers on Christ, his identity, his work, and his people. So look at verses 26 through 27 and then chapter 2, verse 2. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the fullness or the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What's the mystery? It's Jesus. All right. There are three aspects to the mystery here who Jesus is, who his people are, and how he dwells with those people. So let's break that down a little bit more. Who is Christ? This mystery, which is Christ. Well, the Christ is the one that Paul has been spending the last few verses building of that picture. Specifically, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The two weeks we spent on the identity of Jesus Christ. Christ is eternally God the Son. He took upon himself a human nature. He is the agent of creation. All things were made by him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. He is also the agent of salvation, that he is reconciling to himself all things by the blood of his cross. That Christ is the preeminent Lord over creation and salvation. That is the mystery that has been revealed. And it's been hinted at uh, throughout the Old Testament. This coming of a Christ. This coming of a Savior to the world. Immediately after the fall, God cursed Adam and Eve, but he also offered them hope. He said that to Eve that from your line you will have a seed or an offspring of the woman. And he would come and he would be of Adam's race and he would crush the head of the serpent. But his own heel would be bruised. This is what we call the first gospel. The first good news in the Bible, a representative of the human race would defeat the serpent, would defeat Satan. And as you move along in Genesis, Eve names her children. And there's a hint there as she names her children in the Hebrew that she thinks this is the one. <laughs> this, is the, this is the one that, that God promised. It's not. You're going to have to wait a little bit longer. But so we have this mystery introduced right at the beginning. Who is this snake crusher? Who's this one who's going to slay the dragon? And really the rest of the Old Testament is looking for that one. Who is this guy who will do it? The plot continues with Abraham. Abraham, just like Adam and Eve, is promised an offspring, is promised a seed. And this seed would inherit the promises of God. And the line of Abraham continues. And the blessings are passed down through Isaac and Jacob and then to the people of Israel. But we're still waiting for someone to crush the head of the serpent. The mystery hasn't been 
revealed yet. Then within the people of Israel, there's King David. And just like Abraham and just like Adam and Eve, he is promised a seed. He is promised an offspring. Someone who would come and would sit on the throne of David forever. As clearly not Solomon. Solomon falls into a lot of sin. It's clearly not any of Solomon's son as the kingdom is split and eventually taken. And so the people, or the prophets, show up and they start proclaiming messages about the Messiah, or the Christ, which is from that promise to David. This seed, this anointed one who would come. He will come from David's line, but he will also be ancient of days. He will be crushed for our sins and the iniquities of us would be laid upon him. Isaiah 53. Moreover, he will bring spirit, his spirit to all flesh and he will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Ezekiel 34. He will be the good shepherd who will be David and God somehow. And this mystery is teased and alluded to again and again with names given to his identity. He is everlasting Father, mighty God, the root of the stump of Jesse, and they will call him both the Son of Man and the Son of David. And so God, like a master storyteller, is giving these hints to this mystery again and again and again. And all of the Jewish people in exile are waiting. When will this guy show up? And Jesus arrives, born of a virgin, Son of God and Son of Man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the snake crusher who himself is bruised, who dies but rises again and kills the serpent. The mystery is now revealed. We know what Adam, Abraham, Noah, Israel, Moses, David, and the prophets and the saints of old all wanted to know. Who will this be? You now know. You know who he is. He is God the Son who added to himself a human nature. He is our Christ, our Lord, and our Savior, that he might be, as Paul says, preeminent over everything. Supreme. The second part of the mystery is who, God, or who Christ's people are. The second mystery reveals the scope of Christ's work. Shouldn't the Messiah, shouldn't the Son of David, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, shouldn't his people only be the Jews? The mystery revealed is that the people of God, through the work of Christ, include both Jews and Gentiles. And like with his identity, hints of this revelation are given to us throughout the Old Testament. That as we read back it now, we're like, how did they miss it? Well, it's kind of easy to miss it if you don't have the end of the story. But the scope of the story begins, note, not with Israel, but with the whole human race. It begins with Adam and Eve. And the promise isn't initially given to Israel. It's given to the whole human race that someone will come and crush the head of the serpent. And the story narrows then to Abraham and to his family and the promises offered to Abraham. But even there, there's a hint given that through Abraham, all the families and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That through Abraham, even though we're narrowing the focus, it's still eventually going to be universal. And the story's narrowed again. Not even all of Abraham's descendants are included in Israel. And there's this pro but even within the nation of Israel, there's this process that Gentiles can join Israel. They can convert. And Israel is to be a nation of priests teaching the world who God is so that the nations, as the prophets say, the nations would come into Jerusalem and worship the one true God. Hints of the mystery again 
and again. And so with Christ, the giving of the Spirit and the mystery is revealed. That your physical birth can't save you. But as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And now, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians 2, all who believe, Jew or Gentile, are given the Spirit and they are made one. That is, the people of God are Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe. Those who are born again. Finally, the pinnacle of the mystery is what Paul says, that this Christ is in you. Paul's developing this thought throughout his whole letter. But this all-powerful Christ of 1, 15 through 20, that's the Christ who indwells his people. This mystery, which is, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, built off of Old Testament categories and hints. God dwelled with the people, dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, God removed the people, humanity, from his presence. God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And then Christ shows up and in the Gospel of John, he says, you know, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they misunderstood him because he was talking about himself. It's like, I'm the temple. I'm the one who's dwelling with you now. The temple was about me. And then Paul says, again in Ephesians 2, the body of Christ, that is the church, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, they are now the temple of God because the Spirit lives there. The church is God's dwelling place on this earth. And this comes through the work of Christ. The mystery that is now revealed is that Christ lives in his people both corporately and individually. In Christ's Bible church as a church, the Spirit dwells here. In you, who have faith, the Spirit dwells in you. And that is the hope of glory. That that all-powerful, preeminent Jesus Christ lives within his people. And that he will present himself in your lives personally active in directing your life and growing you in holiness. That is the hope of glory, that you will inherit eternal life for Christ is in you and Christ will make sure you make it through. Therefore, you are one with your Savior. This is the mystery the men of old have longed to see and that is now revealed in Christ and his church. And so sometimes we get this inferiority complex where we we look back at the Old Testament and go, man, I really wish I could have been uh, there to see the plagues of Egypt. I could have been there to see the parting of the Red Sea or God uh, coming down on Mount Sinai. If I could have been there, I could have seen these great things. Well, the New Testament says you're actually in a greater time than that. You are no longer wondering how God is going to save the world. You are no longer wondering who this Savior will be. Now, we're wondering when he's going to come back. We're wondering about the specifics of the fullness of the kingdom. But you live in a greater age than that of Noah or Moses or Abraham. Don't forget that privilege that you have. The second part of the mystery of Christ here is that this mystery is meant to bring maturity to us. It is not something for you to just look at and go, ooh, isn't that pretty? Isn't that nice? 
It's meant to impact our lives. Look at verse 28 and then verse 3. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Maturity, you should note this, maturity in Christ is what we're seeking. Christ is in you, and in Christ you will become mature. There's a lot of, lot of in Christ here in this passage. Don't miss the play on words there. This is the message that we proclaim, and it comes with both a warning and an instruction, a tearing down and a building up in all wisdom. The job of the preacher, my job, is not to entertain you. It's not to get laughs. It's not even to be viewed as winsome or nice. The job of the preacher is to preach the word and to warn and to instruct. And to do so with wisdom, cooperating with the work of Christ and the Spirit to present all of you as mature in Christ. That's why God gives the church elders. That we might present you as mature in Christ. And we are to do this in all wisdom. And then verse 3 tells us where that wisdom comes from. For all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Now that word hidden there, don't mistake it as like you have to go digging around and finding it. It's, not, it's more like it's placed in Christ. It's there for you in Christ. Because this is his world and you cannot escape it. What does it mean that all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? Well, basically it means that Christ is the foundation and Christ alone is the foundation for even having knowledge. Philosophers for the last several centuries have been seeking for an initial basis to build knowledge upon. And they've, they've thrown out a lot of theories. The human mind, sensory experience, logic, rationality, uh, the scientific method, uh, self-expression, culture. And now philosophers at this point have now just basically thrown up their hands and say, well, there is no basis for knowledge. Everything is relative. We can't even really know if we know anything at all because they have ignored the actual foundation for knowledge, which is Christ. Christ is the fountain and foundation of all knowledge. You cannot build any way of knowing anything for sure without God and God's world. This means you can't, of course, this doesn't mean you can't know some things without being a Christian. That would be silly. But the reason you can know anything, even as not being a Christian, is because Christ exists and this is his world. And you are created in God's image. As proverb reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And Paul says Christ is the Lord and he establishes for us what is true and what is not. And because Christ in Christ is all of this wisdom and knowledge, Paul is going to turn the next coming verses to confront false teachings. We're going to cover that in two Sundays from now. I think it's important uh, that you listen to that one. You be here. If you can't be here, you listen to it uh, online. But the knowledge and wisdom flow from Christ. And if you want to grow in maturity, you need this universal Christ. Greg Bonson uh, puts it this way in his book, Always Ready. He says, Note that he, Paul, says all wisdom and knowledge is deposited in the person of Christ. Whether it is about the war of 1812, water's chemical composition, the literature of Shakespeare, or the laws of logic, every academic pursuit and every thought must be related to Jesus Christ. 
For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. To avoid Christ in your thought at any point, then, is to be misled, is to be untruthful, and to be spiritually dead. To put aside your Christian commitments when it comes to defending the faith or sending your children to school is to willfully steer away from the only path to wisdom and truth, which is found in Christ. Let me boil that long quote down for you here. It's not as if you have to think Jesus after every thought. It's that everything in this world is related to Christ. And in your total thinking, you need to recognize that. The reason why the West is going insane is because they've forgotten the gravitational center of knowledge, the person and the work of Christ. You cannot continue on knowing that men are men and women are women if you don't have Christ. This is self-evident truth, but we can't even agree on it as a society. Why? Because we have undercut the foundation. God the Son. If you want to grow in maturity, start with this axiom. All knowledge and wisdom is stored in the person of Christ, who is the preeminent Lord over everything. That All things were made by him, and all things were made for him, and he holds all things together. Whatever you study, whatever profession you find yourself in, Relate it to Christ and you will be moving towards maturity. Next, Paul explains that this mystery is worth suffering for. He writes, For this I toil. I should note he writes from prison. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, not my energy, all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul's never met the Colossians. He's never met the Laodiceans. And nonetheless, he says he is struggling for them. Why? Because the universal church is one, is united in the person of Christ. And he writes that, he then writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for the church. There's a lot of perplexing statements in here. First is that idea of rejoicing and suffering. Why does he find joy and affirmation in suffering? Well, first, because Christ told us that if we were to follow after him, we should expect a certain level of suffering and persecution from the world. A servant is not greater than his master. This is something wider evangelicalism has forgotten. You cannot judge the success of a church by what the world thinks of it. You are not greater than your master. The world absolutely loathes Jesus. Why would you think they wouldn't loathe you? Second, what does he mean by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Clearly, Paul is not saying that he is offering his life to fill in some substitutionary atonement for the church. If that is what he meant by it, he would be contradicting himself in this letter and everywhere else he writes. No, what is missing here is what I just, what I just talked about. Christ has sent his church out into the world with a great commission, and he has told them that as you go into the world, you will suffer. And suffering is how the gospel advances. 
In fact, the church conquers often through its suffering. So what is lacking, what has not yet happened, or what Jesus did not do, he is he did not suffer as the gospel went forward after he ascended into heaven. That's what the church was called to do. And Paul was doing it. He was filling up what was not yet there. And this goes back to that point I'm trying to make. That mystery that has been revealed, Paul says, is worth you suffering for. If it costs you your life, you're still getting a bargain. It is the pearl of great price, the treasure buried in the field that is worth you selling everything you have if that's what it takes. So if you want a purpose in this life, you want it to mean something, give yourself to the advance of that message. And that doesn't mean it has to be full-time ministry. Raising your kids, the way you treat your spouse, the way you uh, treat your employees, the way you treat your boss, the way you engage in your society. Give your life to declaring that Christ is Lord over all. And then when you are persecuted, because you've planted the flag of Christ somewhere that Satan doesn't want it, Christ says, consider yourself blessed because you are being persecuted for his name's sake. The last point Paul makes in this passage is that this mystery is given to you to keep you from being deceived. Verse 4. I say this. Why, why am I talking at all, Paul says. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He is telling you the glories of Christ, the mysteries of the gospel, the universal lordship of Jesus, so that you will not be deceived. Right, he's going to turn in these next verses to confront the false teaching that has come into these churches. But he is building this up because there are plausible arguments that people make and that are um, a threat. Put it another way, obvious lies are not that much of a threat. Or at least, if your world hasn't gone insane. Right? Obvious lies are not much of a threat. If I told you I am five foot two, you're not going to believe that. Right? If I told you I'm seven foot, you might believe it, but it's still not accurate. The more plausible a lie is, the greater chance of it being believed. Paul writes to confront the lies that are coming into the church because they are eroding away the truth of the gospel. We often want to find wisdom in opposing views and to appear reasonable to the outside world, but the world hates the truth because it hates the truth giver. I'm really sick of hearing the statement uh, that all truth is God's truth. Of course, that's true, right? But you forget the opposite spectrum of that truth. All lies are Satan's lies. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. All lies find their headship in Satan. And he loves to take a little bit of truth and mingle it with a lie so that you will believe it. We must not use their standards. And so Paul says, know this mystery, know it well, let it be the center of your thinking. May you go to it for all wisdom and knowledge, and you will not be led astray. So let me put it a different way. Let this be your worldview. Or as the uh, P. 
people on the cutting edge of this, when we started using the term worldview, they said world and life view. That's a mouthful, so we shortened it to worldview. But a world and life view. Let it shape how you think and how you act. That is what a worldview really is. That your thinking and your reasoning impacts your lives. Put it in popular parlance, live not by lies. The more lies you live by, the worse your life is going to go. And this is precisely the problem in our churches. Our worldview thinking by every measure and standard is anemic, short-sighted, and even non-existence. If you've been here a while, you know that my life's work is to counteract that. And it centers on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ the creator, Christ the ruler, and Christ the savior of all. One of my elders sent this to me about a month or so ago, a recent survey by Barna. Truly disturbing survey of Christians, but uh, not that surprising. It found that just 37% of all pastors in America have a biblical worldview. About one in three. Let me put that in in a different uh, parlance for you. That'd be like saying only one in three English teachers know the English language. It'd be like saying only one in three math teachers know basic algebra. That's disturbing. If you don't know it, you shouldn't be in a pulpit. I I, I can't put it in. If you don't know math, you can't be a math teacher. If you don't know Christianity, don't teach it. It's, It's really that simple. One in three. You break it down by pastor roles, um, it gets even more disturbing. 41% of senior pastors have a biblical worldview, 28% of associate pastors, 13% of teaching pastors, 12% of youth pastors, and 4, 4% of executive pastors, the ones making the day-to-day decisions in churches, 4%. Lord, what have we done? How do you get to that point? It should come as no surprise then that the surveys say that only 6% of Christians in America have a biblical worldview. 6%. Why is that? Because most of the pastors don't. You can't learn math if your math teacher isn't teaching you math. You can't learn the Christian worldview if your pastors aren't teaching you the Christian worldview. Conversely, so to put this another way, that means 62% of pastors have, as Barna puts it, a syncretistic worldview. That is a blending of Christianity. They've got parts of the Christian worldview, but they blend it with something else. A plausible lie. Plausible argument. What God says in Scripture in these passages here is that if you really know the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel, if you really know the gospel, you will not be taken captive by false ideologies. I've given you this mystery so that you will not be convinced or deluded by these arguments. And yet survey after survey says the vast majority of Christians, 94%, and the majority of pastors, 67%, don't even have the bare minimum skeleton of that Christian worldview, of that mystery. They've been deluded by plausible arguments. So I want to restate it plainly. The Bible says if you truly get the gospel... If you truly get this mystery, you won't be deluded by these ideologies. Well, every survey says that the church is being deluded by these ideologies. This means that despite our protestations to the opposite side, that we don't really know the gospel that well. Because if we did, those numbers would be very, very, very different. 
put it another way. The gospel-centered movement has failed epically. In trying to focus solely on a reduced gospel, we have lost the gospel. It has allowed us to forget the mystery, and it has caused us to be taken captive from our pulpit on down. The gospel without the worldview that follows with it is not the gospel. The gospel needs the Christian worldview, and the Christian worldview brings with it the gospel. You can't separate the two. And the mystery that we have been given has been given to us so that we might not be led astray. And this means that first and foremost, we go back to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ as creator, as sustainer, and as Lord over everything. It is in Christ and Christ alone that we are kept. It is Christ and his gospel that prevents us from being deceived. Without Christ, there is no mystery, there is no gospel, and there is no hope. And so we need a world in life view where the supremacy of Christ is at the center. That is the mystery that has been given to us. And that is the mystery we must cling to. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word and that in that word we can behold the mystery of this universe that is the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Lord, may you transform us degree by degree that we might become mature in that knowledge, mature in the faith once for all given to the saints. Lord, if it were only up to us, there would be no hope. But it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. So Lord, we ask that you might work in our hearts and our minds that we might not be deluded by the arguments of this world and that we might be presented to you on that day fully in our Savior Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.